Luke chapter 8. Continuing the journey, we'll be in Luke 8 again next week, and then I think we're going to take a little break from Luke and do something else for a couple of weeks. Um, Last week we were in the storm, and we had Jesus getting in the boat with his disciples to go across to the other side of the the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and towards the end of last week's reading, Jesus asked them a question, where is your faith? And then they asked one another, who is this? And their, their, their amazement and their fear came from the fact that the one who was in the boat with them commanded the winds and the water, the winds and the waves, and they obeyed him. And, and that, of course, made them realize God is in the boat because Messiah wasn't expected to do this. But God is in the boat and they're having to really rethink who it is that has called them to follow him. And the, the whole thing sort of reminded us of times in the Old Testament. Here's another one when, when God spoke to the, to the waves and, and controlled the waves and controlled the wind, uh, such as in the Exodus, in order to keep his people safe. So that, that was last week we were in the storm, whereas this week it's the storm within. This week it is a human being with a storm rumbling inside them. It is the man known as the... Depends which gospel you read, whether he is the Gerasene or the Gergesene or the Gadarene demoniac. But we're going to look here at how Jesus deals with this man. So just picking up from last week, they sailed. In verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, the posture of a disciple, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. 
Jesus' primary ministry up to this point has been in Jewish territory with Jewish people. And now he is making his first foray into Gentile territory. And where he is, a little bit of history because it's important to understand what's going on. This was the location geographically where seven nations of Canaanites should have been driven out whenever God's people were taking the land. There are seven nations mentioned back in the, in the Exodus and Deuteronomy. The, uh, the Canaanites, the Amorites, all those guys uh, were, were, driv- were to be driven out, uh, to be completely got rid of and, and, and put out of the land, driven away, cast out. Uh, don't feel sorry for them. They were horrendously wicked people who would have, you know, child sacrifice was normal in, in their culture. So, so don't be feeling that, that some nice, sweet little family are being driven from their home. It's not quite like that. And they did not fully drive out those seven nations. The area then was colonized. And this is history. Don't switch off. It's important. It was colonized by Alexander the Great. He was a Greek guy who basically colonized everything and conquered everything and then drank himself to death in his early 30s. And after he died and the Greek Empire faded away, the Roman Empire then came under a guy called Pompey. And they colonized the region and created 10 sort of capital cities called the Decapolis. Dec meaning 10. And that is what the region became known as. It was largely populated by Roman troops. It was full of idolatry and paganism. The pigs that we read later of in the chapter in the story were probably bred not for food, but for sacrifice. Many people think that whenever Jesus uh, made up the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, that the, the far-off country that the prodigal son went to was probably the Decapolis, because he does end up, after all, feeding pigs. And whenever the Romans came to town, the Romans crushed everybody that opposed them. And in this area, they had what's called the 10th Legion. That was the name of the, the particular legion of Roman soldiers that governed or that ruled in this area. And their mascot apparently was a pig. When they carried a banner in front of their sort of marching army, on that banner there was a wild boar. And everybody hated the empire because of the way they oppressed people and enforced their rule on everybody. For the Jews, Rome was the embodiment of a dark and evil power. And last week, this story is so closely linked to last week's. I wanted to do them both together, but you just couldn't. It would take too long. But they're so closely linked. Last week, we saw Jesus in the boat on the stormy sea. And we we realized that the sea was a place from which evil and chaos would come. And in Daniel 7, Daniel had this vision at night and he saw four beasts coming up out of the sea. For the Jewish people, evil came from the sea. Demonic, dark, chaotic forces came up out of the sea. And that's why we had this picture last week of Jesus calming the storm. And one of those four beasts that came out of the sea in Daniel 7 was a terrifying, frightening, very powerful, with large iron teeth crushing and devouring its victims, trampling underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and had ten horns. This is Rome. 
Okay, this fourth beast in, in Daniel's vision coming out of the sea was Rome. And that's how the Jews viewed Rome. This evil force that had come up out of the water to engulf their lives. And the Jews living in that area, in the Decapolis, it was mainly a Gentile area, but any Jews living there would have been constantly under pressure to behave in Roman manner or in Greek cultural manner as well. Not to worship God, not to, to worship their covenant God, Yahweh, but to take on the Greek and the, the Roman pagan practices. And there was nothing more that the Jewish people wanted or nothing that they wanted more than to see the Roman pigs driven back into the sea from which they had come in Daniel 7. This is Jesus' first foray into Gentile territory. He has not just come to bring the gospel to the Jews, but to everyone. But as he goes to bring the gospel to new places, he is faced by opposition. And it is demonic opposition. The storm, I suggested last week, that the fact that Jesus rebuked the storm was a way of saying that there was a darkness and an evil behind that particular storm. And this man that Jesus meets when he gets to the other side of the lake is definitely driven by dark and evil forces. He is demon-possessed. For a long time he had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. I can imagine Peter. Okay. Peter, who was told by Jesus, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And I can imagine Peter saying, not naked, screaming men running at us from the graveyard. That's not what I had in mind whenever I responded to this call to be a fisher of men. This is quite an extreme case of a man. He lived in the graveyards. He couldn't be, when you, when you put the different gospel accounts together, he couldn't be bound. He couldn't be chained. The language that's used of him is the language of an animal. He couldn't be tamed. And he was, he was driven out into isolation. And, and look at what demonization does to people. There's a, there's a lot here where I'm treading lightly because I don't know enough about it. So I'm being cautious in what I say. But for this man to be demonized, he was demon-possessed. Sometimes people talk about demonic possession. Sometimes they talk about oppression. I don't want to get into the fine detail of something that I don't fully understand. But I know this, there is demonic opposition to the people of God. There is demonic opposition to the advancement of the kingdom of God. There is demonic opposition to the human race in general. Because every human being on this planet is made in the image of God. And therefore, the devil and demons hate every human being on the planet and want to destroy them. And particularly those who have received the Spirit of God back into them to be restored fully into the image of God. He hates those in particular. So regardless of your theology of demonology, one thing everyone can agree on, there is a dark evil power that is real that is opposed to the kingdom of God and opposed to humanity. And this man, the, the influence that it has on him, it drives him into isolation. He is on his own in living in these tombs. 
He's been driven away from community and from society and from relationship. Every relationship around him has broken down and he is isolated. That's what the demonic wants to do with people. Get them away from whether it's family or whether it's church community or or whatever it is. Just get them on their own so that they are isolated. He's in bondage. He's tormented day and night. He's surrounded by death. He lives in the tombs. That made him just super unclean as far as the Jews were concerned because he lived in a place of death and a place of, of, of corpses in, in the tombs. Like Living in the tombs wasn't like... He didn't pitch a tent in a, in a nice grassy graveyard. Live, these tombs were caves where the bodies were set on, on ledges in the caves and he lived in there among them. So he wasn't sort of separated from it in any way. He's self-destructive. He's cutting himself with stones, harming himself. He's tormented in his mind. He's suffering mental illness. And can, can I just make it really clear in case anyone would, not underst- or would misunderstand? Some mental illness and, 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 and difficulties associated with that can be and is demonic. Some of it is not. So don't, don't be taking a sweeping statement that if somebody suffers with a degree of mental illness that that means they are demon-possessed. It does not. Okay, there are varying reasons behind it. But behind all of the oppression and suffering that goes on in the human race is evil. Behind it all, driving it. This guy is suffering in his mind and it is definitely associated with the demonic. He has abnormal physical strength. He breaks the chains that people use to try to bind him. And he's naked, which had shame associated with it. This is the effect of demonic possession, oppression on one particular man. Horrendous. And the demon himself, the demons in general, when Jesus stepped ashore, he's met by this this man who's demon-possessed. Whenever Jesus showed up, if you've ever wondered why you don't read much about demons in the Old Testament, and then you turn the page to Matthew and you start reading the New Testament as just like... It's because God incarnate in Jesus has come and has proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come, that Satan's time is up, that he is going to set people free from suffering and from sin and that he's going to establish his rule and reign and build his church. That's why the demonic exploded into life. Jesus would just go into a synagogue, I think in Mark chapter 1, and the demon would just start screaming, I know who you are. And that never happens in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden, because Jesus is there, because God is there, and because he's proclaiming the kingdom has come, there's this explosion in demonic activity. It just seems to awake. And then Paul as well, when you read Acts, Paul wants to go certain places to bring the gospel, and he writes that Satan hindered us. This demonic opposition to the, to the gospel progressing. And on the surface, this man is crazy. And you might discount him and give up on him and say, just leave him out there in the tombs to himself. Let him, let him do what he wants as long as he doesn't bother us. But Jesus goes to the problem behind it all. And the problem behind it all is the demonic. You've got to acknowledge, you know, the, the reality of evil in our world. There are times that people do things that there simply is not a human explanation for. 
there are times of, of brutality and violence, you, you, you know, just not liking someone or just wanting revenge. These things are not obviously good either, but there, there are times that people do things and you have got to look at them and think, this is, this, there's no human explanation for this. This has got to be evil. There has to be something behind it. There has to be something that is animating what people can do to one another. How can you explain people like Hitler? How can you explain people who, who walk into schools with guns? Who fly planes into, into skyscrapers? How can you explain that without acknowledging there is a real force of evil that animates people. It's been about since the very beginning. In Genesis 3, this conflict begins and God says to the serpent representing Satan, because you have done this, misled humanity and pulled them away from relationship with me, because you have done this, in in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He will crush your head. Jesus will crush Satan's head. And our culture sometimes just thinks that if we can't see something, then it's not there. If we can't analyze it and give it a name, then it doesn't exist. But the Bible very clearly teaches, and Paul in particular in Ephesians, in 2 Corinthians, says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus rocks up to the shore of the Decapolis and this man meets him and Jesus' struggle is not with this man. It's with what is behind the man. That is what needs to be dealt with. People had tried binding the man, isolating the man, all sorts of things. But Jesus knows that the man is not the problem, that there is something behind him animating him. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This place, the heavenly realms that Paul mentions in Ephesians, where there are dark spiritual forces, where our prayers can impact, where there is a battle going on. You can't take that out of your Bible. The demons have not gone to some retirement home somewhere and put their feet up, work done after the first century. It is real and we ignore it at our peril because it will oppose us in everything we try to do for the kingdom of God. Sometimes the opposition in, in, in starting a ministry and in trying to, to move into an area, to take ground, to bring the gospel to people who have not heard it, the opposition is unreal. <laughs> it's just unreal, the ferociousness of it sometimes. I've been shouted at so many times. It is, it's ridiculous. If I ever write a book, there'll be a chapter called How to Deal with Being Shouted At <laughs> and Opposed. And people trying to, to stop. And all you're trying to do is bring the good news of the kingdom of God to see people set free. I've sat in conversation, in long conversations with people over the years and listened to them. And I've, as I've listened to what they have said, I've thought to myself, this is not normal. The words that are tumbling out, out, of, out of, you know, the confusion and the content of, of some things. I've sat and listened to people who, really troubled, broken people. 
and think and sat there thinking, I'm in the room and this person is in the room. There's somebody else here. <laughs> because the stuff that is coming out of their mouth is just confusion personified. This man is under the influence of spiritual forces that are at war with humanity and at war with God. And as soon as Jesus gets out of that boat and puts his foot on the Decapolis territory ruled by the pigs of Rome, the man, something in him just awakens and comes sprinting down the hill, screaming, I know who you are. I know who you are. And the thing that he does, it's quite funny actually a lot of the you know the the bible is ironic and and funny in a way that jewish people maybe get and we don't get that much but whenever the demon possessed man comes running at jesus and declares that he is jesus son of the most high god that's what you would do in an exorcism that's what the rabbis would have been trained to do if they were dealing with a person who was under demonic possession oppression they would have been told try to find out the identity of the demon And it's almost like the demon-possessed guy is trying to exercise Jesus. (laughs) He comes and declares, I know your name. That means I've got authority over you and I'm going to perform an exorcism on you. It's just all completely back to front. And Jesus just flips it and says, right, what's your name? (laughs) You know my name. Well done. (laughs) The demons, James tells us, know and they believe and they tremble. And Jesus says, what's your name? The same authority that he showed on the storm in the boat, he's going to show here. He's completely calm. He's not jumping and shouting and and he's just going to say, what's your name? And the demon replies and says, Legion. Now this is a a term for a Roman band of men. I mentioned earlier the 10th Legion of Rome that would have controlled this area. And this is the way that the, the demon is saying, there's lots of us in here. This man was completely tormented, completely and utterly tormented by multiple demons. The, the legion in Rome could have had up to 6,000 men in it. And the demon says, we're legion. I am legion. We are many. And goes on to beg Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss. The sea of Galilee was sometimes called the abyss. And they beg Jesus. And again, there's irony here because that's exactly where they're going to end up. And they asked to go into pigs. Demons are like parasites. They've got to have something to feed off. They've got to be localized somewhere. Again, I don't want to over-dramatize or sensationalize, but have you ever walked into a scenario and as soon as you've walked in, you've thought, there's something going on here. There's, there's, there's a darkness, there's a heaviness, there's a coldness, whatever it may be, and you just know there's something. Even a town can be a stronghold of demonic opposition because of years of idolatry and and years of of God being pushed away the way these people try to drive Jesus away. And, And Jesus does give them permission to go into the pigs. And then the pigs go down the bank into the sea. You remember that army that came out of the sea, that Roman army in Daniel 7 up out of the sea, and Jesus says, back you go. Because Jesus knows the problem is not with the Roman army. The problem is with the dark, demonic, satanic forces that are behind them. Jesus says nothing to the Roman soldier with a hammer and a nail, nailing him to the cross. 
And when he's hoisted up on the cross, he prays for the forgiveness of the man who did it. Jesus knows the problem. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. The flesh and blood driving the nail is not the problem. It's what's behind it. And the pigs are are driven back into the sea. Jesus casts the demons into the pigs and the demons drive the pigs mad and they go down into the water. And there's lots of military language here actually hiding in this passage. The term for the herd of pigs was a military term used for, again, for a group of Roman recruits, Roman, young Roman soldiers. When it says that he gave them permission, that, the, the Greek word is he dismissed them, the way an army commander or general would dismiss a group of soldiers and put them off duty. When it says they rushed down the street, the steep bank, that means they charged like a Roman unit. unit charging into, into battle. It's full of military language. And these people looked at the Romans and saw the Romans as being the problem. And Jesus says, no, behind these nations, behind Rome, behind Nazi Germany, behind wherever it is where people rise up and destroy one another, there's demonic powers behind it. And these Christians in the first century were facing persecution from Rome. Jesus go straight to the source of that persecution. The battle is not against flesh and blood. And you need to make sure that whenever you face opposition, that you fight against the correct enemy. Whenever we fight against human beings, the devil loves it because he sees more division in humanity. The battle is with what's behind them. We end up fighting against the very people that Jesus calls us to save and show his love and grace to instead of identifying where the real enemy is located. And as you see all that military language, you have to sort of ask the question, have you ever before seen somebody telling the sea what to do and then drowning an enemy army in it? Last week, Jesus in the boat on the, on, on, the, on the lake in the storm told the sea what to do. And then immediately afterwards, he drowns an enemy army in the same sea. Because it reminds me of the Exodus. Whenever Moses held his staff out over the water and God commanded the wind and the waves and the sea parted immediately. And as people were delivered safely through it, just like the disciples, immediately afterwards, who goes into the sea? It's Pharaoh's army and they are destroyed in the sea. And there is no doubt all three gospel writers put these two stories one beside the other. So we will see the exodus and see that what Jesus is doing is he is delivering people, not from slavery to Egypt or to Pharaoh, but from slavery to Satan and to sin. Jesus is delivering people. He is carrying out a new exodus, a second exodus, setting people free. Jesus does not lay into the man. Look, look at the man at the end of, of, of Luke eight thirty five. This man who was naked, who was tormented in his mind. And once he's, once he's encountered Jesus, he's dressed. I don't know where he got the clothes from. Never thought about that before. <laughs> guys, live it. I, I don't think the guy had his clothes in a wee case in, the, in a tomb somewhere in case he ever got straightened out. I don't know where he got the clothes from. But you had this man whose life was just shame, nakedness. Everybody, as soon as they saw him, knew there was something seriously wrong. Mm-hmm. 
And Jesus doesn't just sort of clean them up and say, right, you know, go to the shop, get yourself some clothes. Or, he, he is clothed. Jesus, see, when people encounter Jesus, he gives them dignity. He restores them from whatever shame and whatever <clears throat> people associate with them from the past. And he gives them dignity. Love that. He's dressed and he's in his right mind and he's sitting at Jesus' feet. Last week or, or the week before, I can't remember, but I, but I pointed out the inside-outside theme that goes on in the Gospels where Jesus' family are outside the house, not understanding what's going on, and the disciples are inside. And where are they inside? They're sitting at his feet and he's explaining the kingdom of God to them and explaining the parables to them. And this guy is immediately a disciple, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And the guys that looked after the pigs, they freak out completely and they run back to the town. The loss of 2,000 pigs would be a wee bit of a blow to the local economy. There would have been a fair few people employed raising these pigs and providing them probably for pagan sacrifice. And so after that, the people want nothing to do with Jesus they ask Jesus to leave. Get out of here. You know, you have come and you've brought your kingdom and it has affected my wallet. <laughs> it's affected my bank balance. Go away. And they, they drive him away. They are more concerned about a herd of pigs than about a human being. The way this culture and this community dealt with a tormented human being was to drive him away and put him in chains. Whereas Jesus comes and sets him free and gives him dignity. They tell Jesus to go. And then the guy comes to Jesus and begs him, can I go with you? And this is Jesus who has gone to various people and said, follow me, follow me, follow me. And they've left everything, left their business and their boats and their whatever. And they have followed him and physically gone along with him. And this guy comes to Jesus and says, I want to be in the team. And I want to get in the boat and go back across the lake with you and follow you. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> You're not. And that seems weird. Jesus says to him, go home. Back to your own people and tell them how much God has done for you. But the guy goes back to his home and he doesn't tell them how much God has done for you. He tells them how much Jesus has done for him. In fact, the way Luke writes the passage in Greek, if you look at that last line of verse 39 in English, how much Jesus had done for him. In Greek, it's how much was done for him by Jesus. Luke makes sure the passage ends with the word Jesus. And as we saw last week, we had the disciples in the boat trying to figure out what was going on. Who We thought Jesus was in the boat, but it looks like God's in the boat. Go and tell the, the, the people in your home everything that God did for you. He goes home and tells them everything that Jesus has done. And the gospel writers are just subtly driving this in. Jesus is God. He is not just the Messiah. He is not just a prophet. God has come among humanity. And the guy is told, no, you go home. So a few questions as we close. Is this a failed mission? How would church growth and church metrics measure this? Measure this? If, if I was to take 12 of you and get in a boat and go across a lake through a horrendous storm, get to the other side on our mission trip, 
and one guy comes and this one guy gets born again and gets straightened out and then we go to move on into the into the surrounding towns and villages and we are told to go away and we come back home and people say well how did it go (laughs) how did it go well the journey was quite traumatic and you know, we all left our homes and our businesses and, and we lost our income for that time that we were over there. Uh, one guy got saved. <laughs> and we would probably say that sounds like a fail. Because <clears throat> we look at church metrics with business metrics and we say, well, we invested Jesus and 12 men and a storm and all that into this, into this and only one guy got born again. Surely it was a failure. But when you look at the geography you see more to this than meets the eye. And this is where you've got to sort of piece the Gospels together. But this happened in the Decapolis. Jesus goes back to the Decapolis in Mark chapter 7 after this has taken place. We're in Luke, in in Mark's account, this is in the start of Mark 5. And in Mark 7, Jesus goes back to the Decapolis where he had been driven away from, where he had been told, we don't want you here go away. And when he's in the Decapolis, a crowd gathers and comes to him. A crowd that's so big that he has to provide food for them. It's not 5,000, it's 4,000. There are two feedings in the Gospels. There's the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And when Jesus goes back to Decapolis, the region where he had been driven away from and told, we don't want you, he goes back again and 4,000 people gather. And I wonder what happened in between. I wonder, did the man do what he was told? Did he go and tell people everything that Jesus had done for him? Did word spread about what had happened? And then when Jesus come back, this crowd of 4,000 gather. And it gets even better because when Jesus, when he fed 5,000, he did that in Jewish territory. How many baskets were gathered up afterwards, the leftovers? 12 baskets of leftovers. I think I've ate about 12 tubs of soup since Friday night. (laughs) 12 baskets of leftovers gathered up, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is the bread of life, and he's come to provide bread for the 12 tribes of Israel. When he goes to feed the 4,000 in the Decapolis, he's not in Jewish territory. He's in Gentile territory. Anybody know how many baskets were gathered up? Seven. Do you remember how many tribes there were associated with this territory in Canaan? The Canaanites and the Hivites and all the Ites? There were seven of them. I've always wondered why there were seven baskets, and I think that's maybe why. Jesus has not only come to bring the the bread of life to the 12 tribes, to the people of God. He's come to bring the bread of life to everybody. Everybody. Even all those nasty Ites. He's come to bring the bread of life to them as well. Jesus has come come to fulfill prophecy for Israel and for the whole world. He'll feed the pagans. He'll heal the demon-possessed and set them free. He doesn't care. Are you you a human being? I'm interested in you. (laughs) That's it. There's no ethnicity involved. And it's easy to look at this story and think it's only one guy, it's a failure. But you read on and you realize one guy, when he starts telling his story, can have an awful lot of impact. So for those of you who maybe are a bit frustrated 
with one guy, one person, one, one ministry sort of, target's not the right word, but, but someone that you're just investing into, don't give up. Don't quit. One life with his, or one guy with his life turned the right way up can go and affect a whole community. John Tyson says, breakthrough in an individual can break open a community. We tend to get it backwards and we tend to go after a community and try to put on an all singing, all dancing show and invite people to come. Whereas Jesus went after one person. And once that one person had sat at his feet and got discipled back into the community. And when Jesus returns, suddenly the community has become open. So was it a failed mission? No, it was not. Will we go to dark places and tormented people? I couldn't help last night but think as I was pondering this dark place among the tombs. Some of you will get this and some of you won't. But a line kept coming to mind. Nothing ever grows in this rotten old hole and everything is stunted and lost. (laughs) Some of you will catch that. Some of you need to get more cultured. Will we go to dark places and to tormented people? Because if, if God is the God who goes to the other side, through the storm, into the darkness, into the graveyard, to the most sinful, least likely people to set them free, and we are following him, then we should go there as well. To similar places, into the darkness, to set people free. Or will we give up? This guy was, and, and no matter who you've been praying for for years, no matter who it is, I guarantee you, I bet the house and the dogs on it, that this person that you've been praying for is not as bad as this guy. This person that you've been praying for, for salvation and for Jesus to come and to turn their life the right way up, they're not running around screaming naked. They're not probably, you know, up all night breaking chains and, and banging stones against themselves. This should give you hope. No human being is ever beyond Jesus. No one. And we get, and everybody experiences this, you can get frustrated with people. And you can pour yourself into people. And I've even had people say to me, you should just give up on me. And I'm like, I will not give up on you. You can walk away, but I will not give up on you. Because one human being is worth it. One human being. No one is ever, ever beyond hope. No one is in a worse position than this guy and he ends up clothed and in his right mind. Will we give up? We, I think, need to get back out into the darkness. The church needs to go to the darkness. We are bearers of light. There are things that we used to do and COVID, of course, put a lid on those things. But as I said earlier, surely we're coming to a place. Spring, <laughs> spring is coming. Surely we're coming to a place where we could once again throw the doors open and invite the young people in off the street. Surely we could go back in among them again. We've come two years. Surely it's time. We've got cozy and, and I think reasonable reasons and justifiable reasons for not doing things have run their course and now it's a case of those things are just becoming an excuse it's time for the church to get back out into the darkness and to bring the light to people like this do we identify the real enemy 
The demonic seeks to, seeks to dehumanize people, enslave them, break the image of God in them. Jesus comes to bring deliverance. When, Jesus, or when God created Adam, mankind, he breathed his spirit into him. The purpose of the image of God is to be a dwelling place for the presence of God. And I wonder, is there anything else that breaks God's heart more than to see the image of God indwelt by an unclean spirit instead of the Holy Spirit? Do we identify the real enemy? Do we think about the the demonic and how it affects people's lives? I'm convinced that drugs and demonic activity have a very strong link that in the bible mind altering things it's it's pharmacia in in revelation mind altering drugs whether it's weed or cocaine or heroin or spice or whatever it is that i that those things i believe open up a doorway for demonic activity do we have any understanding do we ponder what we're dealing with And finally, do we realize the authority that we have? With this, I finish, and I credit John Tyson again. He's he's in Hell's Kitchen in New York is where his church is. Do we realize the authority we have? He he pointed this out, and for some reason I've never actually thought of it. But uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, with authority and power, he gives orders to the impure spirits, and they come out. And further on in Luke, we'll get there in Luke chapter 10. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to do what? To trample on snakes. Does that sound familiar? You know, a snake that got trampled on? To trample on, I have given you authority to trample on snakes. That's what he said to the disciples. And what John Tyson pointed out for dummies like me who have never really thought about it is that the word authority contains the word author. And he makes the point that the the author is the one who can write the story. And whenever people open themselves up to demonic things, whether it is through drugs or whether it's through worshiping idols and and how this culture worships idols whatever it may be whether it's through trauma but whenever somebody has come under the influence of the demonic the demonic has the authority and is the author and is able to write the story of that person's life and jesus comes and says i am taking back the pen (laughs) and i am the one who has the authority to be the author and to rewrite the story And I think many people, the devil is trying to write a story of destruction in their lives, of isolation and of death and of self-destruction and of mental torment and darkness and all sorts of shame and nakedness. The devil is trying to, has taken the pen from those people to write that story over them. Jesus calms the storm, gets off the boat, meets the man and says, I'm taking back the pen and I will rewrite this story that's the storm within and how jesus dealt with it let's pray and then we're going to worship aren't we yes we are